So this bolt of lightning shot across the universe and inspired me with the idea that we have to do a podcast. And that's what I wanted to tell you. We should do a podcast. Okay, bye. Hey, hit record. I did it. All right, so did I. <laughs> Go team. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right, so here's the deal. Uh, we're going to... Oh, so welcome to Feature Creep, <laughs> colon. Built-in microwave, semicolon. An actual art-based discussion on an art and design podcast of ours. Serious design yeah, We'll discussion. see how long that lasts. Right. Um, so we thought we might talk a little bit about sculpture. Yeah. And uh, in particular, one artist I... Um, I'm very fond of the work, but I'm just now learning more about his life. Uh, so there's an artist named Henry Moore. Um, I find mm-hmm. his art really distinct, distinctive, um, easily to, it, it's easy to distinguish once you've kind of seen a, a, a bit of his body of work. It's, I find it often quite easy to like pick out, you know, yeah. if I see a sculpture of his, it's like, oh, that's his. Um, I've seen a couple of his sculptures. So one of his sculptures is here in San Diego at the um, Sculpture Garden in uh, Balboa Park. Yeah. Uh, there's another, um, I know another of his sculptures is in Dusseldorf, which I also saw um, mm-hmm. in Dusseldorf, Germany. And uh, I believe often his larger works are, oh, there's another one of his pieces I saw at the Grounds for Sculpture in New Jersey. Oh. Um so he's, you know, I mean, anyway, we'll, we'll get into it. So anyway, this is a podcast. <laughs> if this is the first one of ours that you're listening to, um, welcome. And you should know a couple of things. We have um, an email. You could, if you have comments or thoughts and you want to get in touch with us, the best way is to email us. And we have an email address um, or we have an executive assistant that we that usually manages all of that communication. Um initially and that's Dana so our executive assistant Dana you can email her directly Dana D-A-N-A at fcbm.io and we would encourage you to send in your thoughts um, and you know join the discussion we've had we've had some interesting uh, we hear from people from time to time also yeah. if this episode isn't really doing it for you um, but maybe you don't mind the sound of our voices uh, you may mm-hmm. check some of our back catalog we've got quite a few episodes that range from a lot of different topics um right so to very silly to slightly less silly and yeah coherent to slightly less coherent right right exactly and yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're we've i keep saying this we're a big hit with people's dogs who stay home during the day <laughs> yes yeah hi um, buster hey buster uh, exactly so <laughs> uh with that said um let's get into it maybe do you want to talk a little bit about sculpture? I can. I just pulled up the Wikipedia article. I thought I'm I might. a big fan of sculpture. Yeah, I find too. that a lot of the art that I do ends up being really sculptural without actually trying. Mm-hmm. I just like making stuff. Um, yeah. And uh, I guess I'm. I, I rather than categorizing myself as a maker per se, because a lot. Of, I think of makers as people whose objects have teleological goals, like, oh, this is a thing that does a thing. Right. Like, right. It, it, you know, I made this thing to do a thing or I made this to serve a purpose, whereas like sculpture for me is just kind of like I made a thing, period. Right. Right. Yes. <laughs> just yeah. ends there. I made this thing. Yes. And I really like creation um, done. Right. Done. And no act of creation is ever too small. Mm-hmm. And I like uh, I really like sculpture because 
um, as opposed to two-dimensional art, like a painting or something like that. Yeah. I feel like it, it. the fact that it takes up space gives it kind of a personality and like a, it's less of... Um, it's it's almost it feels almost less abstract to me in a way because a painting is a picture of something that's not there. Yes. Or right. and you have to sort of like fill it in and imagine and often like paintings, impressionist paintings, for example, are deliberately not I identical to what your brain and eyes perceive when you look at things in the world. Mm -hmm. And so sculpture to me seems to kind of like meld sort of this like uh like there's it's very real because it's three dimensions and it's taking up space and it's a thing that occupies space with you like it's another thing there with you in real life it's not just a picture of a thing yeah um but also like the it doesn't have to be anything specific like it can just be a shape and so it can be very abstract in this it, while simultaneously being very real like it's really i love sculpture yeah yeah it's um i often think about how uh, when you're kind of looking at um, works of art and you might be looking at photographs or you might be looking at paintings or you might be looking at more three-dimensional structures. Um, I find it interesting where, like when I look at photographs, there's an aspect of sculpture that strikes me, which is that oftentimes looking at photographs in like say a gallery, there's, there's the real world practical point of it, which is like it's printed on a certain kind of paper. It's mounted on a wall. It's in a place. It's got mm -hmm. all of that to me influences like the experience of it and paintings, especially even more so if you are able to observe it closely. Like if you have had the opportunity to say, like, look at a Jackson Pollock versus like some other kinds of, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> other kinds of art, like um, I'm trying to think of the, Man, I've not had a lot of sleep in a long time, and my brain just like <laughs> it's like missing a lot of the connections that it used to have. And I, I right. hope they'll be able to come back. But they'll come back. Um, they'll come back. Yeah, I'm thinking of, um, you know, like like if you look at like religious paintings and things like mm -hmm. of the like 15th, 16th century, where it's like like these really like very real, like attempting to be very realistic, and yes, and and they lose a lot. Like they're they've kind of removed as much of the experience of brushstrokes and like texture as much and it's like very close to this like very flat you know deep picture um mm -hmm. or you look at like a jackson pollock where it's like if you've had the opportunity to look at it closely or stand kind of close to it you see that it has a three-dimensional it's a texture like the paint right. the paint the strokes the splatter everything is more than just the image that you get from standing from one side and so a painting like that takes on more of a sculpture like a three-dimensional object like experience because you can view it from different angles and have slightly different impressions from it um yeah and that's where like sculpture is kind of really stands apart from like image like images where mm -hmm. you're stuck with that one viewpoint um grossly yeah, you can, like circumnavigate a sculpture and get yeah. the experience of it from a bunch of different angles as opposed to yeah like on. yeah especially if you've had opportunity to spend time like in a sculpture garden it's like you can lay on the grass and look up at it you can you know sit on a bench from far away and see it in a silhouette you can you know depending on the sculpture come up very close to it and touch it or at least like you know be mm -hmm. next to it like sit in the shadow of it watch the sun move around it like all of these things that um add this like ins insanely like more complex like dimension to it yeah um, yeah i also like uh you know when you're looking at like a painting in a gallery for example or yeah. like just any any framed art on a wall just anything stuck on a wall for yeah. instance um 
you're like a person in a space looking at a thing that is not the thing of a space that is not the space that you're in. Right, right. And with sculpture, you're like, nope, we're just here. Yes. Like, it's all just right here. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, like, there it is. Um, I I think this kind of links well to this concept that you, or this art piece you talked to me about before that you'd like to do, which is like a very large painting mm-hmm. that... Um, I remember when you described it and you're going to have to help me out here, but I think, I think the idea was like, it was so large that you, that it wasn't enough to see whatever the image was. It was about standing in front of it. And you talked about maybe like the floor in front of it being like slightly unlevel or like Mm -hmm. these things that make it difficult to experience the art the way that you traditionally do. And to me, that's like a kind of sculpture, right? Like the Mm -hmm. image, the painting is part of it, but the whole thing about where you're standing and like what you were saying, it's like being in an art gallery where that's, you know, if we're talking about like visual art, like, um, or still art, like art, photographs and paintings, right. there's that. I loved, I loved when you talked about that, it like really immediately attacked like one of the sort of, one of the standing frameworks that exists in that community, which is like you stand in an art gallery with a white wall and certain kind of lighting so that, so that you can experience the image the way it was meant to except Mm -hmm. that that's so fixed. Right. And you're like, no, fuck that. Like there's like, you know, uneven terrain and like, you know, like there's only one place you can stand, actually see it well or whatever, like this Uh great idea. Um, It's like an arduous, like you have to go through something Yeah. to like, you have to proceed through the liminal space around the artwork Mm -hmm. in order to achieve the art at the end. And so you have to like make a journey that you go into and you come back out of different for having done it. Right. Right. Yeah. And it it has to be difficult. (laughs) Right. It has to be difficult. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I just want to give a little back of what I've experienced in my own (laughs) life. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think as you're talking about this, I'm pretty sure that the color black Uh And lots of different textures featured heavily into this particular piece of art. Yeah, yeah. I kind of like the sensation I get of thinking about making it is like you almost have to like you have to go into another state of being in order to interact with the art. And how you achieve that state of being is going through the physical space that surrounds the art to get to the art. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Also, um, freaking sharks with freaking laser beams on their heads. Yes, right. Yes. <laughs> or like, you know, a moat full of alligators and, uh-huh. and <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Something. I, I think one of the things that appeals to me about sculpture in general is the sort of artifact nature of it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that kind of, uh, depending on the media used or the form, like the materials and the techniques, um, it can be it can be very permanent like stone, like a marble or like a bronze casting or something. Um, mm-hmm. It can have this like very permanent feel to it. Or if it's maybe carved in a soft wood or something where it's like less, less permanent. Or um, I'm trying to think of, there's a, there's an artist who does uh, like there's paper kind of, there's paper mache, which yeah. is a wonderful form. Um, especially if you've had opportunity to see somebody who's like really like spent a lot of time working with that material because they, they really can create some really deep and interesting like textures and, and it's so flexible and they can often work rather quickly compared to like, you know, chipping away at a piece of stone or something. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, but there's an artist who did, uh, I believe it's, um, masking tape sculpture 
Ooh. Um, and I will just see if I can find that person right now. Um, yeah. There was, um, while you're looking for that, you yes. made me remember um, this. I watched a documentary not too long ago um, of a man named James Grayshaw who created uh, a piece at the Aldrich Museum in Ridgefield. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm not sure where Ridgefield is. Um, I'll just read you what it says here. Yeah. Uh, so this is this is from the News Times. Mm-hmm. Um, from April 10th, 2012. And that was when this fountain was created. Um, James Grayshaw's corrugated fountain is a gigantic sculpture that recalls the Trevi fountain in Rome. Mm-hmm. It opened April 1st in 2012. This was rape- written 10 days after the opening. It says, like the Trevi fountain, it is outdoors. Unlike that fountain, however, it is made of cardboard. And so it it calls... It calls to memory all of the sculptures from Trevi Fountain. So it's got horses and like fe- it features characters on horseback rising out of waves and like giant fish with scales and Neptune with his trident and sitting in the center of everything. And this uh, it stands. It stood. It no longer stands. Mm-hmm. It stood 12 feet high, 30 feet wide, 25 feet deep. The deeply detailed fountain took four painstaking years to build. After watching the documentary of it, I have to tell you that I think it almost ended this artist's marriage um, because he became utterly obsessed with creating more and more and more mm-hmm. and more of this cardboard sculpture. And his wife was like, oh, my God, this is becoming like problematic, like it's taking over your life. And so he just kept working on it. And everybody was like, what are you going to do when you're done? He's like, well, I'm going to stick it outside and let it fall apart. And everybody's like, you're insane. And people were like yeah. worried that he was unraveling and that he was creating something for nothing and they did not get it. Like they did not get the point of the impermanence Uh or the point. They didn't understand like you're a famous sculptor. Like you're apparently in 20, let's see in 2012, the artist um, was 70 years old. Uh And so like in the end of what people are looking at, like, you know, the twilight of his career or whatever, he's throwing all of his efforts into nothing and then it's just going to be destroyed. And he was like, he was deeply impacted by his own work. I mean, he was just driven yeah. to continue doing this. And so um, he said, uh, uh, corrugated fountain is undoubtedly his masterpiece. Um, uh, kids play with cardboard. There's no greater toy than a giant refrigerator box to make cars, TV, uh, or put on a play, he says. Then uh-huh. when it's beaten up, you can get in and roll it down a hill, he says, because he knows he used to do it. Yeah. His father was in the appliance business, always bringing home lots of cardboard, and he's been working with cardboard forever. He has created both large and small scale sculptures with it, including house plants, intricate cardboard bouquets where lovely little homes and buildings spring out of multicolored blooms, small enough to set on a coffee table. But Corrugated Fountain is his masterpiece. Um he determined that the end of the road for that art piece would come at the Aldrich Museum. And uh, the afterlife for Corrugated Fountain, which was the name of the art piece, yeah. was documented um, in uh, an intimate portrait of the artist at work, a film that has chronicled the piece from the start. So that's the documentary I watched, an intimate portrait of the artist at work. And it just follows him over the four years of him creating this piece and his sort yeah. of like... Um, drive to complete it. Uh, and that then sounds amazing. I, 
Yeah, and in the movie, at the end, they show it sitting outside of the Aldrich, and they show it being rained on, mm-hmm. and the process of it transforming as it peels apart, and the cardboard wrinkles, and p- pieces of it that weren't supposed to be curled suddenly curl up, and pieces that were supposed to be curled flatten out and decompose. Right. Like, it's it's fascinating to watch it change over time, uh, and I, I felt so much compassion with this artist while I was watching the documentary, because I was like, I get for reasons we won't go into yeah why you would create something only to destroy it right like right. i completely understand that it's only when you have the ability to create and destroy your creation mm-hmm. that you actually maintain control over the life cycle of a thing like you yeah. actually retain ownership over that thing whereas when you make something as an artist and then you let it stand other people take ownership of it. It is no right. longer yours because it right. exists in the public world. It exists where other people have access to it. And so I felt like very inspired by this. And uh, watching that and watching the movie um, Beauty is Embarrassing, which is mm-hmm. about another visual artist, but he's a painter. Right. Um, those movies inspired me when I came home from uh, being out west to do more work in cardboard. And now I have cardboard art all over my house. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I, I it's, um, it is really fantastic. Uh, so I, um, just before I lose it, I, the artist yeah. I was thinking of is an artist named Max Zorn. And he mm. does this, um, he, he does like masking tape art or tape art. Um, ah, yes. And it's, it's kind of, a lot of his stuff is less sculpture and more painting like um, his imagery is usually like layers of tape on sort of a canvas that's backlit. So oh it, it controls the light that comes through. Um, it's really fantastic. There's. Um, wow. I have not seen his stuff before. Yeah, it's it's really it's it's really well done and really has a really interesting like imagine like basically if you're familiar with like a a light box which is like sometimes you might use for viewing negatives or viewing like like transparent film or something like and then using masking tape to control the amount of light that comes through until you build up this image so a lot of his images have this sort of feel of um sort of sepia tone black and white kind of feel to them exactly they look almost like they look like like sepia toned photographs of other people's art or Mm -hmm. or or scenes like there's i'm looking at just google images i googled max zorn tape art yeah and i've got lots of people that look like um almost like mid-century like 1950s Mm -hmm. people in big cityscapes standing on balconies by the subway by old model t cars like yeah um, yeah it's sort of like cusp of like art deco kind of yeah um, yeah it's it's pretty great um but very sculptural as well too because in order to block the light you have to apply more and more and more layers of tape yeah yeah so it's um and and i think like i i want to make the argument for um, if you are listening to this and you're thinking about art that you do yourself, I would I want to make the argument for considering even if you work more like in photography or something where um, you're kind of capturing these still views, there it's worth considering what your environment is and what the three dimensional aspects are, even if the image itself, like the the bulk of the content that you're creating or you're capturing, is is sort of fixed in view, um, because things like this. Like I was thinking about like photography, like I remember when I was studying black uh, black and white or just I was studying photography mm-hmm. and we were doing um, a lot of black and white printing myself and, you know, developing negatives and then using uh, 
in the darkroom. I remember as we moved to the digital realm, I was really disappointed that um, even now where it's like, like you can capture insanely detailed, really fine, good images with digital cameras. The thing yeah. that I miss is the media that you can create those images on. There is something about that, um, the old style, like silver nitrate film, or not film, but paper, yeah. that is different from even a printed black and white photo. And I yes. don't know exactly how to describe it. There's something about the paper, the way that it, it captures the image. Um, like the whole process for me is like part of the thing that I'm like, I miss with using a digital yes. format where even with a really nice photo printer or being able to order really beautiful color prints, I like, if I want to work in black and white, I miss that silver nitrate media mm -hmm. that doesn't exist in the, in the printing world. Um, yeah. I, the, it's, it's interesting to me, like, I really enjoy digital art or art that comes in a digital format, like yeah. not necessarily art that was intended to be entirely digital. Yeah. Um, so, like, I have nothing. I'm not biased against digital art. I think a lot of it's really great. Right. It's just another medium, just like anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but one of the things, I mean, it, like what you with digital art, you can create these like incredible, fantastic, impossible scenes that that look totally realistic um right. and so you can you can accomplish amazing things in digital art that would just be inconceivable in any other type of physical art form but i think in some ways you kind of give up this like this corporeal sense of it being real or like you give up uh you I do know, i i think also um you know to kind of link it back to what you were talking about with um uh, what was the name of the artist who built the fountain? The oh, uh, 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 James Grayshaw. <laughs> yeah, James Grayshaw. Like the um, that concept of like it being impermanent, and so even when you create something in stone, um, or like a quite heavy, like a quite permanent thing. Like if we look at a lot of like historical art, like ancient Greece and things like that, where it's like a lot of marble sculptures coming out of there, where it's still they are damaged over time and yeah there is there is a kind of digital de decay that happens with the storage of digital media and that is true and and we're not maybe we haven't lived long enough to really see what that actually like turns out to be mm -hmm. um and so perhaps in a long time there will be generations looking back at the media and art that was produced during our lifetimes and think of it in the same kind of terms of this kind of decay that happens um but I was going to say there is something um there's something about making an art piece that how it how it succumbs to um to entropy yeah as part of the process like it's like you make this thing and now you watch it through time yes right it's like how, what does time do to this thing that that changes the nature of it like and you know and uh, I already forgot his name um who were we just great shout yeah like he made a very conscious effort choice he's like i'm you know this is going to happen in my lifetime like i'm putting it out there and in days and weeks it's going to change and that's part of it for me right and fuck you guys that you think it needs to be some kind of permanent thing you know locked away in a vault somewhere like that's you know that's a you know that's a thing that happens but you know, Grace Chow was like, well, right, but this is a thing that I'm doing and, you know, I'm sorry you don't appreciate it and hopefully you will as you watch it happen. Um, right. Yeah, and I, I think that, um, and I absolutely get, like, that, that sometimes 
you know, especially art for me is like such a process that's the part that is enjoyable. The final product yes. is not. It's sort of negligible for me. It's Yeah, it's not that I have to like, like I want the experience of like whatever medium I'm working in and I want the experience of like, you know, did I get paint on my fingers? Like watching mm-hmm. Peter draws, like to just to kind of mention one of our modern artist like favorites. Yes. Um, the way that he engages with like you'd think that pen and ink is like a pretty dry like non-tactile experience and the man like oftentimes you watch and it's like he comes away with ink in places that you're just like wow well like you were in it like he's tasting it he's smelling it he's rubbing it on his fingers he's you know putting it on the paper like it's this is a man who's like fully in the process of making the art like part of part of the joy that he has shared with us by giving his you know by providing that youtube channel um peter draws this is what we're referring to so if you if you're interested uh googling get on the googler and peter draws will come up as soon as you type it in but um he has a youtube channel that is delightful oh my Um, god it's so good yeah and it's one of my favorite things about being alive yes like that's how much i love it i'm like thank god i'm alive right now because i get to watch peter right (laughs) (laughs) it's worth it yeah and so like that that concept of like um like it's for sure it's the process like yeah. the art i love the art and it's delightful but i love it all the more for having been able to share in his process of creation um mm-hmm. way more than whether that art like survives into you know later time and you know whether it's yeah you know like i anyway so I think yeah. about like this idea of like having art that is like destroyed almost the moment that it's come to cre- come into existence is not to me great because it's not like it's like for art isn't a form of like survival for well it's not a form of like I need income or I'm trying to engage with this like social environment in a like a monetary sort of capitalist way yeah. Like for me, it's like I want to, you know, art is an engagement both in my physical world as well as like anyone else who's participating in the art mm-hmm. and, you know, destroying it or having it be impermanent or having it be like, you know, very limited in scope and, and availability is I, I that actually I'm not a big fan of exclusivity. Um, mm-hmm. And that is maybe one aspect of like art dying and being or, you know, art being impermanent that is harder for me because I don't like the idea that it creates um, this exclusive experience that other people couldn't enjoy. That's the only ah. like I'm not saying that that's you know outweighs any value in destroying art early or having art that is like you know limited in lifespan. Um, mm-hmm. I just that is one aspect that I don't I don't like things that create exclusivity like um, yeah. you know like especially like events where it's like this gated community where it's like you had to be there and things like yeah. that like I, I find that um unfortunate because there's a lot of us and you know i would love for most people to have the ability to like enjoy their lives and not feel like that feeling of like not being allowed to experience something yeah Um, i think of art uh and like making things with your hands and like creating something from nothing or or transforming something to be as essential to humanity as like fucking squirrels burying nuts is to squirrels yeah, yes, you know it's just yes, like a function like yes, why do squirrels do that i don't know because they're squirrels and it's what they eat they evolved to do that that's yes, we make yeah. art because we just this is a function like we breathe we eat we live in a thing we sleep in a bed we make it we make art like yeah, it's just yeah. a, it's just a it's not it's not because of anything it's not for anything it's just 
it's just it just is yeah. <laughs> it's just, yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was reading uh, while you were while you were talking about um, watching something transform over time. Yeah, it made me think of this artist named Andrew Erdos, who is also a sculptor, a sculptor, and um, he makes really interesting sculptures out of a bunch of different elements that are meant to constantly be shifting and changing over the life of the project. Mm -hmm. And so when I met him, he was at the Franconia Sculpture Park in. Um, in Minnesota here and he had an opening where he was doing some of his art and so you could watch him make the art and so he builds these giant chicken wire sculptures mm -hmm. structures substructures and then he um he smelts a bunch of aluminum and then he pours the aluminum over the top of it and as the aluminum as the molten aluminum hits the frame of the sculpture in some places it burns through and falls to the ground in some places it drips down and he does this over and over and over again so he reiterates which is one of my favorite pieces of art yeah or like aspects of art <clears throat> And so he reiterates and reiterates and reiterates. And then sometimes he'll like embed a bucket or like some kind of a vessel inside of the sculpture so that as it melts, it stuff drips down into the bowl. And then he always sets his sculptures outside. And so they're made out of like molten metal, glass, and water usually and they're meant to like interact with the elements and so as they get rained on mm -hmm. they rust and other components fall off or fall down the little vessels that he's put in it fill up with water and mm -hmm. so now there's like an audible sound like you oh, can yeah. hear if it's mm -hmm. raining and so the sculpture itself just like becomes this whole other thing that he's not in charge of anymore mm -hmm. and as it decays it like gains new features at the same time and it's super right. cool so right. I was thinking about him and how interesting his art is and how it's how it's meant to transform um and then i was reading here uh about henry one of henry moore's sculptures that's very famous and it's at the tate i think um and it, it's called recumbent figure it's from 1938 and it says here like that it's a sculpture of a woman laying down mm -hmm. um and in embedded in it are little fossils on the surface so like the rock that it's carved out of has mm -hmm. like these other creatures or the remnants of these other creatures embedded in it that get revealed the more of the sculpture is eroded mm -hmm. from time, which I thought was really fucking interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and finally the thing that I was thinking of with the transformation is like this, this, uh, uh, the reason that, um, Alan or, uh, James Grayshaw put his art out mm -hmm. when he made that Trevi fountain was that his art dealer, um, Alan Stone, Alan Stone's daughter was the person who did the documentary about James Grayshaw's art piece that was falling apart at the Aldrich. And so um, when Alan Stone died, mm -hmm. uh, a bunch of the oversized sculptures of paper mache that he owned were put in his garden and they were disintegrating there. And um, so that's like, it says originally they were in the house, but before he died, Stone, whose house was crammed with art, placed them outdoors. Grayshaw saw them and was so moved by their appearance that he immediately decided to build a corrugated fountain. They were so much more meaningful this way, melancholy and sad, but better, said Grayshaw. So corrugated fountain was born and with it, the documentary by Stone. And, uh, and she asked him like, are you going to be sad when 
this crumbles. And he said, to, to do this with as much integrity as possible makes the dissolution that much more meaningful. I yeah. know I will be sad, but I am sad. I am 70 and my body is aging. It's a summation, a dialogue with myself about mortality. But there's something thrilling about giving something everything you can, burning as sharp as you can, and being an architect of the future of the piece. It's an adventure. Nobody knows how it will end in life you give up control. And yeah. I thought that was like so great. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's uh, I, as I'm looking at some of Henry Moore's sculptures here, uh-huh. they're they're much more like abstract and sort of they have like biological and sort of fluid forms. Like he does a lot of a lot a lot of skulls and animal heads. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which, his his signature style is that reclining figure. Um, yeah, and that's how it's it's often very easy to pick out. Um, a lot of his work is oftentimes he has very abstract reclining figure pieces. Right. Um, and usually it's it's kind of a bust with with sort of legs or some kind of body extending out to the side yeah. of it. Um, yeah. And and so it's very easy oftentimes to pick out like some of his more famous like works if you see them um, or as you would see them like in front of a lot of like a lot of his work gets bought up by corporations and placed mm-hmm. in like building lobbies and things and um mm-hmm. it's usually these like massive bronze sculptures but or bronze castings and um i was gonna say i don't i didn't know that much about his life and um i don't either well, tell me <laughs> well i just was reading um so he was a trustee of both the national gallery and the tate gallery ah. and uh and he had made a proposal that a wing um, in the Tate Gallery should be devoted to his sculptures, which uh, uh, rightly, uh, you know, brought up a lot of hostility among some artists. And it <laughs> does feel very like, um, it, you know, and one of the things about him is that he was, um, he, uh, so one of the things about him is that he was uh, like famous in his own time. <laughs> and so, I believe um, I'm trying to look for this. It was in the, I'm looking at the Wikipedia article. Uh, so today is February 18th, 2022. Um, and it's the Wikipedia article on Henry Moore. And I'm looking to see, but I, I feel like I read that he had been um, so popular in his own time. Like he was like, maybe like the high, like the highest paid artist or like most I, I like the wealthiest art, like one of the wealthiest artists Whoa. at the time or something, but I, I forget yeah. what the metric was, but um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yeah. So most, so most sculptors who emerged during the sculptors who emerged during the height of Henry Moore's fame and in the aftermath of his death found themselves cast in his shadow. And that's one of the, you know, probably one of the issues, right? Of like, I think any kind of, this is where shit gets fucked up when it's like, when it meets the sort of capitalism, right? Like a, yeah. a, an interesting thing meets capitalism and it's like, oh, now it has this like fucked up weird rift because it's like one of the problems I think with fame is that it's so intricately tied with like wealth, right? Because being mm. famous often means you have access to things that you have access to exclusivity, yeah. which yeah. is where it's like, you know, like in reality, it's like you don't in art. It's like, you know, just because you do something that looks similar to something else, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have merit in its own right necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and when when it's not when you're not competing when you're not left competing for like a resource whether it's like adoration of public or it's you know monetary gain then you don't care that somebody else is is cop copying you quote right, right? like right. it doesn't really matter like you're you're just in your mode of do you know you're doing your art and creating your pieces and the fact that somebody else is over there trying to have the same experience is from my point of view a great thing like yeah. did they just make the exact same piece like it doesn't matter because it really wouldn't impact me because i'm not making this to compete for a resource where like i need other people to you know tell me i did better or worse than someone else it's like just sure. come appreciate this or don't i appreciate it because i did this thing but when you're in the context of like the competition and and sort of trying to you know in this case like henry moore like really defined himself with this very unique style in a very successful way um mm -hmm. you know kind of the way um who's that fucking hack uh um it's in that movie that we both like uh oh um you know he painted that that dumb you know he basically painted a big giant soup can um, uh, Andy Warhol. yeah right like it's kind of like it's like <laughs> you know it defining a style right and like then yeah. just churning it out and like henry moore produced quite a lot of sculptures um yeah. you know his work is everywhere and it's it's you know anyway. another artist i really like who's a sculptor yeah. is um ai weiwei and he does really interesting work and I'm, I'm sure the reason that i love him so much is because one it's sculpture and two the sculptures are composed of things reiterated upon over and over and over and over and over mm, yeah. um like one of his recent works was i guess maybe not that recent when there were all of the um refugees leaving northern africa and trying to sail to italy in the boats and they kept sinking and like like orange life rafts or orange life vests would wash up on shore. Mm -hmm. um, he made some sculpture that uh, assembled a, a massive amount of orange life vests into a sculpture to represent all of the people who had like drowned in the ocean trying to just get to safety. Right. Right. Um, and I found, and a lot of his art is like very politically motivated. He's gotten, I mean, like detained and arrested in China mm -hmm. for his art um, because it's so like uh, it's so confrontational. Yeah. Uh, and it's so good. And it's they're always like massive scale installations, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I just think about like, OK, so we've got, um, you know, we've got uh, Henry Moore who makes all of these bodies and, and focuses on like bones and human figures reclining and things like that. And mm -hmm. then the, James Grayshaw who did the corrugated fountain, who was more interested in the impermanence and, and like recreating the, the fountain as like a, the fountain was like a substrate for the yeah. art, yeah you know, and, and gave the art its form, but the art itself was just things falling apart. Um, like Henry Moore's stuff is obviously going to last a really long time because it's made out of durable materials. Like right. it's made out of shit with millions of year old fossils in it. Yes, like it's going right. to be around. It's already been around for a while. Yeah. And then, you know, and then you look at these other artists like Andrew Erdos or James Grayshaw, who's like, they're specifically making things that will not endure. Right. Um, and I just like, th there's so many different ways that people create sculpture and for so many different reasons, it seems almost more varied 
and um and subjective than maybe even some of the other forms of art are you know i mean like yeah. with a portrait it's gonna look like the person or some interpretation of the person that's what a portrait is but right. sculpture could be anything yeah um, yeah and that's um you know it's i think that's where if you're looking at paintings um i think people get really interested in um a lot of the paintings that aren't that you know like the ones that right. that really deviate from the kind of capturing what's there and being more abstract and and interpretive mm -hmm. um, and i mean there's whole movements of art that are you know are painting styles that are around that like um I would be interested in making some kind of sculpture too. Like a lot of people talk about how they start with a form and then they take away the parts of it that aren't supposed to be there to reveal the form that's hidden inside of that form. Right. Like subtractive, like your room. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Subtractive art. I'd like to start with like a giant ass block of stone and yeah. like carve out the inside of it. Yeah. So yeah. as opposed to working and removing pieces from the outside and working in, work uh -huh. from the inside and remove pieces until you get out to the extra, sh like the shell of what it's supposed to be. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of the, um, like the, the sort of cartoon cut out as, as you exit through a wall. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but but more i get more three-dimensional right it's not that like you yeah. know a two-dimensional shadow on a wall it's it's a three-dimensional right. yeah projection inside of a, a volume yeah mm -hmm. and that that kind of distinction between like you know additive versus subtractive right like it's a very there's it's interesting to think about in terms of like different media and how that works like clay like working in clay can be both additive and subtractive like you can add clay or you can have a block of clay that you carve away from um yeah. you can have uh but like paper mache where it's mostly additive it's difficult to create a subtractive experience with paper mache although you could you could yeah. create like you know some kind of structure that's like now i made it and i would argue perhaps that um Grayshon's, uh fountain Cardboard fountain. What is the title of the piece? Uh, it's called. Um, hang on, let me scroll back up. It's just called corrugated fountain. Corrugated fountain, like yep. a beautiful example of like both additive and subtractive processes, because he's mm. he's doing an additive process where he's building this thing, and then yeah. part of the art is the subtraction that's happening by placing it outside in the weather, and right. now it's it's beginning to morph and change by being having pieces removed or having elements of it changed. Um, mm -hmm. And that's another thing like that, that kind of just, you know, neither additive or subtractive, like where you're just kind of modifying the existent, existing shape of whatever this is that's in front of you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I think the thing that made people so upset about the fountain that fell apart mm -hmm. was the amount of time it took to create it and how swiftly it was, destroyed uh-huh like yeah six it was like six years to create it and like a month before it was totally just gone just soggy cardboard laying in a uh-huh yeah um, yeah which yeah that's i mean i i've thought a lot about this after studying uh like aristotelian ethics and things like that and um and uh, socratic thoughts on what con uh, constitutes a, a good life and um I've arrived at the conclusion that uh, a long life is maybe okay, but like a really short death is probably better. <laughs> uh, right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I, that's what I think of when I look at this fountain, like I uh -huh. see, I feel, 
I felt so much compassion for James Grayshaw when his wife was like, what the hell is going on? And I'm like, please, can you just wait a second? All will be revealed. <laughs> right, right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I, ideas like that are always so funny to me because it's like as soon as I, I, I like most things, as soon as I start to kind of examine the concept, it falls apart in my, or it doesn't fall apart. It, it immediately, it immediately like, stretches out into this long like like gradient of grays like (laughs) you know a long life is great and a short death is great but a long death is horrible but it's like but where is the line for when death starts in life like you know what i mean like it's kind of um there have been a couple of points in my life where i'm like i'm dying like it's happening right now and if i continue on this trajectory not gonna be here in a little while gotta turn this shit around Uh yeah yeah (laughs) like right now i feel great right Um, right you know like um Right now, I, de- I de- if it's like, do you feel like you're dying? Well, I mean, in so, it, what do they say in Fight Club? In a brainy brain food sort of way, <laughs> yes, we're all dying. Like, I get right, that. Yes. <laughs> but, but no, I feel pretty good. I feel like I'm still on an upward trajectory. Right, right. Yeah. Like, there's more good feeling to have than to experience. And yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's uh, it's yeah, I don't have anything terminal right now. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, it's interesting too. like, uh, when I think about a lot of stuff that Peter draws does, he ends up like, like we were talking about his whole thing is about the process and less about the result. Mm -hmm. Um, as evidenced by the fact that he's got books and books and books and books full of sketches and drawings and things like that, that are not on display. They just exist and they're away somewhere and they don't have to be looked at all of the time. Right. Um, and I, I sort of think about that and I reflect on like the preciousness of art. And I think something that turns me off to art sometimes is the very preciousness of it. Like the fact that ironically, I feel like I would be really good at this job. People sit and painstakingly restore paintings. Yes. And like try to, do the same thing to paintings that we do to bodies with plastic surgery and like, no, no, just a little while longer, yeah. you know? Yeah. And something about the preciousness of that just makes me be like, Ugh, it's so much work. Like it's so it's, it just eclipses the work that went into the art in the first place. I, so I have a funny experience <laughs> with this. I have a personal story about art restoration, uh, painting uh-huh. restoration. So um, a previous partner of mine had this painting that I believe either belonged to her dad or maybe her mom or something, but somehow she had acquired it and had some sentimental value. And it was, um, it was a, a large, maybe like three by four and a half foot painting. So it was pretty, pretty large. Um, and it was panoramic and it was this painting of, um, of like a valley with a river with mountains. And, you know, it was just kind of this, um, and, and it was pretty and it, and I liked it and it had this like very like the frame was, you know, pretty ornate, like that kind of gilded sort of. Um, yeah, I like love sort those of, frames. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, thick and, and you know, flared out with all the mm-hmm. intricate carving on it. And um, and so I had I was going to hang it on the wall uh, when she moved in and we were going to hang it on the wall in a spot. And I I took it off. I. I'd kind of set it there like on something like I'd hung it on something or I was getting ready to hang it there. So I'd set it under the wall and then I had these, um, these like hooks that like sort of like they don't go through the wall. They like stick onto the wall mm-hmm. and, um, and they, and so I was like, I wanted to clean the wall with some, um, 
alcohol, rubbing alcohol. And yeah. so I like cleaned a couple of spots and then I dripped a couple spots, <gasps> a little bit on the painting, which was just so fucking dumb. And oh, it no. just immediately just like it left. It was like a, it was almost like bleach. Like it left a couple of spots just ah! right in the middle of the painting. It was just heartbreaking. And so I, and so this painting was like not of it's, it's, great art because it had such great value to her and to me Mm -hmm. because of that like i felt like oh this is valuable to you and i i appreciate how much you like it love to have it on the wall and and now i've like ruined it right (laughs) and so i i was like i was really distraught about this i I mean it's much as she was like we both it was just like oh my god like what the fuck so i um i did some searching and i i found somebody here in san diego who did art restoration and I was like, great, I'm going to take it to her. Just what you were describing, right? This yeah. idea of like, you know, just preserving, but like trying to reproduce the painting as best you can. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I took it to her and and she was like, it, she was great. She didn't dismiss. She understood why we were there. Like for yeah. one thing, it was like, this is not the kind of art she usually does restorations on. Usually right. she does restorations on art that have value, like, monet, you know, that are are kind of... Assigned um, a monetary uh, value. Yeah, assigned a monetary yeah. value. Um but it was great. She immediately like understood that it was valuable to us. And she said, well, I will try to, I've got some things I can do that might be able to, um, you know, restore it without being too much cost to you. And, and she tried those things. She's like, they didn't really work. And she's like, and I was like thinking, fuck, like we can't restore it. Right. Like I'm already like, she's like, no, 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 we can fix it. It's just going to be more costly because I'm going to have to basically go in and repigment those places. And I was like, and in the end, I think it was, it was it was surprisingly reasonable to me. I'm thinking thousands of dollars, and it was more like you yeah. know three hundred dollars or something. I mean, it was it was more than the painting was worth if you were to buy it, but sure, absolutely worth it to me um, to be able to yeah. fix it. And she did a really good job. Um, like I, you couldn't tell. I was like, I had no idea. Like, had I you know, after I saw it, I was like, I don't even know where, like, there's not even, there's just no way. I mean, sure. Somebody could have like been able to like go over it and figure out where she'd repigmented. But I was like, man, this looks just fucking amazing um, and well worth it. But anyway, so I appreciate what you're (laughs) saying about this thing about like art as a concept and like this idea of like trying to like the artist having you know long died and and someone else coming along and trying to like nurse this thing along through time. Um, Mm is absolutely like it seems ridiculous but also like i have this personal experience where it's like but oh man did they really like really bring a lot of joy to me personally and to my partner at the time yeah so um i don't know it's just a very funny contrast i mean and and that's where i get it like a lot of these things where it's like anytime i think about like anything that's definitive like as soon as i like give it any examination my brain's like yeah but all this gray area (laughs) like yeah but but though wait wait though wait though (laughs) yeah but wait though um which i i one of the things i appreciate about our friendship is like you often reflect that back at me all the time i'm like this thing and you're like but wait though but wait (laughs) but wait have you considered all the gray area over here (laughs) i know right yeah oh god i just live in the gray area Mm mm-hmm I have a little tent just I pitched a tent right in the dead center of the gray area right right (laughs) oh that's funny yeah yeah I uh I think like 
man, I, I, I think there's a difference too between art being precious to some person uh-huh. and art being r- widely regarded as precious for social reasons. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm totally okay with precious art. I'm yeah. not okay with art that is precious for preciousness sake i guess or something like i get what you're saying yeah it's like it's weird like okay so i love museums i love going to them but Mm -hmm. i find them very strange yeah yeah like why uh, i mean anything that you see in a museum's collection is like uh, like up on the wall where you can actually access it and view it um is only representative of like a tiny sliver of what they control yeah and so like what good is all of that art if it's so precious that you have to keep it where nobody can interact with it right and you only bring it out on display like it reminds me of the towels in my parents house that we weren't allowed to use in case guests yes yes and i'm like towels are for like wiping your hands off like yeah they're not uh, weird so Mm -hmm. i just like i think about I think about a how much art is hoarded and kept away from people by museums. Yeah. And who decides which art to hoard and how that art no longer belongs to the person that it was made by once it's hoarded by a museum. And then when things are like the scarcity of art is what often gives it its value. Yes. And so scarcity in terms of art is clearly artificial because everybody makes shit. Almost everybody makes stuff. Yeah. And so if you so like what constitutes stuff that's good enough to be considered art, that's good enough to be collected by a museum and preserved forever and kept away from the rest of humanity to not enjoy it. I have I have a, a this like just this <laughs> fantasy in my mind that I think we could make real. Yeah. Um, maybe what we could do is we could put on a show in a gallery. Uh-huh. And we could um also maybe get some of our artist friends who would be, you know, understanding of what the ultimate outcome would be, which is to have art on display, paintings, photographs, whatever. And we'd have like a good back catalog of it. And we'd put out like, you know, so I can just imagine like you have this white room with like 15 paintings and photographs on the walls and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the stuffy like, you know, art opening with with cheap ass fucking white wine that's like not quite like Carlo Rossi, but it's like, <laughs> you know, it, it, it seems fancy and like, you know, crudite or whatever and cheese yeah. or whatever. But and people, you know, walking around seeing the art and but not like basically the idea would be like if somebody wants to interact with the art and draw on it or take it off the wall and take it with them out like no one's gonna we don't stop no there's stop you. none of the staff are gonna stop you just yeah. by all means and like maybe even have some art supplies somewhere that's like i don't want to make it obvious where it's like we'd encourage you to trash the place but more like <laughs> right. like all of the trappings of the stuffiness but with none of the consequences of not having like of interacting mm. with the art differently and then just see how it goes and yeah. you know maybe if like nothing happens when day we can just walk in and take a piece off the wall like in front of people or like do just fucking like just you know go up there and be like i don't like this and take a bick and just like fucking cross it out or whatever you know just like yeah whatever it is to like interact with these art pieces in a way that's like oh wait what like that museum guard that drew eyeballs on the yes. painting yes exactly yes. like i i don't see why we couldn't make that an environment that works where it's like there's some art on the walls and right. you know if you fuck you know no one's gonna stop you like maybe other patrons might be like oh what are you doing mm-hmm. but you know nobody in charge is gonna stop nobody you. in charge is gonna stop you just be like oh interesting 
Oh, That's is that how you feel fun. about this piece? What? That'd be super fun because yeah. like then you would end up with the same sort of like process of you know the trevi fountain and cardboard gets stuck outside and the rain destroys it at yeah. our gallery we stick a thing out and other people do it but yeah. regardless the whole purpose of it is like how is this art piece going to change over time it doesn't belong to anybody right right yeah it's just like i've i'm done with it now as far as i'm concerned I this is garbage cool. i did the art part of it i don't right. you know if somebody shows up and wants to like you know take my garbage away fine by me like i don't care yeah um yeah I support this. I like yeah, the idea a lot. Yeah, I bet we could I bet we could do this. I think it would be fun. I've also wondered, and maybe somebody has done this. Maybe I should Google it before I'm like, how come nobody did this? Yeah. Uh like you know, are you familiar with the little free libraries? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why don't we have little free art galleries? Yeah. Well I mean, right? I'm I'm the one saying this and I should just be putting one in my yard. Right. I, it's something that I've thought about and I ha I I'm like I'm thinking like I'm probably doing that overthinking thing. I'm like, "But what kind of a box would the art be in?" and like, Bleh! and I'm just yeah. like overthinking it to the point of like paralysis. It, whatever you want it to be or none at all. If you want the art to weather, you know, I mean, yeah. whatever, like, yeah. Yeah. Little free art gallery. I'm going to write mm -hmm. that down. It's been in the back of my mind for a long time. And then I also was like, well, I, I don't want it to be just my art. So I wonder if I would put like a little sign up that says like, need some art, take some art, have some art, give some art, like the penny jar at the yes, checkout. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. That would be fun. I'll try that this summer i'll try it you know i now like i you've seen my yard it's fenced in by what is uh, in some places an extraordinarily tall chain link fence and in other places like you can see over it but it's a very tall chain link fence right, like, yes. i don't know <laughs> i don't know like who installed it or why and uh -huh. like my neighbors everyone who's ever lived next door to me and i have always mused about like the height of the fence on the west side of the house like why is it so tall it's like a it's like a playground like kickball field backdrop tall like it's yeah really yeah tall. it's quite high yeah and i think maybe, and not in the fun way right not not the fun way um i think the reason that it exists is because i have asbestos siding on the side of my house and uh -huh. i think they wanted to put a fence around the house anyway and i think they just decided to make it extra tall because on the west side of my house it's very close to my neighbor's house and yard and if yeah. like they had kids or something hitting yeah they were baseballs, like, they would just right. destroy the shit out <laughs> of the side of my house right and so i think it's less of an anti-social thing and more of a like trying to protect like a the safety, house feature. Sort of thing, like yeah. safety feature yeah 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 exactly but I, I who knows right but anyway that being said i've got this very like imposing chain link fence that's basically like fuck you stay out of my yard yes. <laughs> <laughs> which is not at all how i feel right. about life right and so i'm like if i put the little free or little free uh art gallery yeah. in my yard uh -huh. no one's gonna come into my yard to access it right they're gonna be right. like well obviously it's behind this like six foot tall chain link fence i'm not going in there yeah so i'm gonna have to put it out on the boulevard i think yes you're gonna have to put it on the boulevard or what you could do is do it long and shallow on the outside of the fence Ooh, and just like mount it to the fence yep I could mount it to the fence posts for sure. It's a very sturdy fence. Yeah. Ooh, that's really interesting. And if you had, if you had either, um, you know, I depending on what kind of art is in there, whether it's like weather resistant or not, you could you could kind of create cabinet doors or whatever. You could have doors that swing out a little bit so people could access it, or even just a sliding, yeah. like a sliding panel or something. But yeah, um, good thinking. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like the idea of hanging on the fence, actually, because 
then it's right there on the sidewalk. Yep. It's at eye level, yep. essentially. And it's obviously meant, you know, like it's outside the fence. So it's meant for people to interact with. Right. right. And I like that better than the boulevard. The boulevard seems to me to be like an option, but also like it, maybe in, in a, some ways like an imp- It's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. It seems weird yeah. The, I, boulevard. the boulevard are you're talking about the like the past the sidewalk, but before the street. Yes, the yeah. strip of like grass and trees that's between the main road and the and the sidewalk exactly. Yeah. I think I think in many cities that's actually like public thoroughfare. Like you you're it's yours it's to like maintain, but it's yeah, yeah, it's kind of an easement, I think. Um yeah. I'm not sure. It sidewalks are handled very differently in different cities, like depending yeah. um like sometimes you as the property owner are are on the hook to maintain that like if the cement gets broken like you have to fix it like the city's yeah. not going to come fix it but you right. have to do it because the city's going to come and fine you if you don't or whatever right but, yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a mandate so, with no support <laughs> right right yeah it really depends um but anyway yeah. uh i love this idea i think um I think well maybe next time you good. come and visit we should make a project yes like we should just make it the project for while you're here. like we're gonna build an art gallery and hang it on the fence outside for people yes yeah and i mean i live in the northeast arts district of minneapolis like the whole point is that a bunch of people moved here yes. and set up art studios and shit in old buildings because it was the affordable place to do that right and right. it's being gentrified like crazy just like the last artist neighborhood mm-hmm. i lived in 20 years ago where we all moved from to northeast we used to live in uptown and then we moved to northeast right. and now we're all gonna have to move on to northeast at some point because we can't afford to live in our own homes anymore because everybody's uh, like oh look at all this art let's like move here and fix up all these houses that people couldn't afford and then like chase out all of the people who made all of the reasons we wanted to live here in the first place god uh yeah <laughs> it's like it's not it's not new i mean no like, no no it's not yeah Artists are always displaced. Like, you know, yep. the problem, too, is that it's like, oh, I don't want to I don't want to, like, gentrify a neighborhood just for the sake of being able to afford to do art in it. Right. Right. <laughs> That's its own problem. Yeah. No, it is its own problem. And there's also um, I art and society is a really interesting thing. Maybe we should talk about that at some point on the podcast, because yes. there's um, there is this idea that that art comes from a certain level of like like once a once a society has reached a certain level of like mm. wealth or resource availability mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then people have free time to do spend time on art and things but i yeah. think about um where like a lot of modern art usually comes from uh capturing imagery of of destitution or like um you oh, know yeah. like lack of wealth and lack of access to resources and you know this sort of um, some of the most amazing art often comes out of someone who has a very like they're very driven with ideas, but they're very limited in what they have access and media to use. And so they mm-hmm. like, you know, you look at like sculpture, for example, like found object sculpture is really fascinating because oftentimes it's like, well, they just found this crap and then they made this like amazing thing because right. they can't like, you know, they're, they're not somebody who went off to fine art college and then, you know, had access to all the great marble, you know, wonderful marble stone or whatever, like mm-hmm. this expensive materials and medias like patrons, patrons and whatever. It's like, no, they, they got nothing and they're yet they're, you know, have they have the ability to survive by at least earning enough money or enough income to 
feed themselves and potentially clothe themselves, but otherwise devote all of their time to this like passion of theirs. And, you know, I, I don't think you, I, I don't think there's good examples of like very rich artists who were born, you know, who came from wealth, who then be, you know, produced. I'm sure there are some, but it's right. like, um, you know, anyway, yes, oh, wait, you I, think? I had a friend at one yeah. point in time who I haven't spoken to in a very long time. Uh, for reasons that will go unmentioned. Yes. Lots of unmentioned things this episode. Fair. Um, but he was a, a student at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design, which mm -hmm. is very much like RISD or any of the other like very prestigious art and design colleges, hyper expensive, right. really selective to get into. And um, he was able to be accepted on his own merits. I mean, they look... he. He's a fantastic artist. He he works in oil paint, uh -huh. and his stuff is really really fucking good. Yeah, um, and it always has been, even in high school. Like I have one of his early paintings sitting next to me in the basement right here. That oh wow! I was I was inadvertently a model for when I was sitting in a chair, and he did a sketch from it while we were at a coffee house, and then he painted it, and then he's like, "Here, you can have this painting." I was just like practicing some stuff, and I made this painting of you, and I was like, "Oh wow, cool." Yeah. Anyway, I haven't spoken to him in a long time for other reasons, and unimportant but um when he was in his final semester uh -huh. at mcad he decided he was gonna drop out and he wasn't gonna finish his four-year degree in fine art uh and the reason for that was his father had paid for his entire education uh, essentially up front like they had a lot yeah. of money and so his uh -huh. dad paid for him to go to this really fancy art school and he felt that his credibility as an artist was severely undermined by the fact that his dad could afford to pay for him to go to school and so he quit school without graduating wow because he yeah. felt like that gave him more legitimacy as an artist right which i was like Okay, there's a lot going on in this argument, and I yeah. don't agree with all of your premises or right. your conclusion here. But yeah, you do you, I guess. Yeah, and, so and, I and don't, to be clear, I like I think that um, I don't think that like suffering necessarily validates your art. Right. I my my statement is more on the like the sort of overview of like if you're you know, you're looking at factors and you're like, oh, good art is coming from this thing. But yes. it doesn't mean that you have to have those things. And for right. sure, artificially manufacturing those for yourself, I I don't know, man, like you do you. Like if that's what right. you need to feel like you're doing the right thing. But for me personally, as someone who is like on the receiving end of something that you're producing, I'm not, I, I you know, like looking at Henry Moore stuff, it's like the more I read about his life, I'm like, oh, this guy was like probably kind of an entitled white man. Um, yeah. You know, and whatever. Fuck that guy. But like, it doesn't diminish to me. Like, it's just part of the thing that's going on. Like, it, like, yeah. and a lot of the art, like in many ways, I think is uh, Henry Moore's art is diminished by the fact that it's so corporate now. Like it's mm. been such, it's such an acquisition of corporate or it be, it's become this like corporate acquisition thing. Yeah. And, and that really opens a whole door to other issues of discussion where it's like, or other other discussions around issues of art oh where it's God. like it becomes this like wealth vehicle yeah like we're a we're a fucking silicon valley unicorn and the reason that we're valued at over a the fact that we're valued at over a billion dollars is evidenced uh by this henry moore statue yes, in our fucking right. lobby of this insane building we built with investor money and nothing to show for it in the end Ye yeah exactly yeah and it's and you know or just like if you've watched any of the there's multiple documentaries now about the way um wealth is stored in art in these like yeah. weird these weird in-between zones where they're not in any country and they're just mm -hmm. stored in warehouses and it's like yep you know money fucking, laundering yep 
See, that's this would be a really interesting subject to do a podcast on because like art has always followed money and yeah. is heavily influenced by crime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like art is hugely underwritten by criminal activities. Yeah. Because what I mean, what are you going to do with ill-gotten gains besides shove them in a painting that suddenly is worth three million dollars? <laughs> right. Right. It's like legal to have a $3 million painting. It's not legal to have $3 million in laundered funds. Uh-huh. And so like art art is a way, a huge vehicle for money laundering, just like real estate is. Art yes. Is real estate. You buy a shitty giant house that you have no intention of living in to like sock away all of your ill-gotten gains and then you pepper that thing with fucking art on the inside. Right. And you just build a monument to like crime and money. Uh-huh. <laughs> It's so weird. Like it's so, it's so weird. It's so strange that something that is such a like basic form of human expression becomes so co-opted and owned by other people for reasons that have nothing to do with the thing itself. Yeah. Yeah. Like, is there anything else like that besides art or real estate? Like, I mean, even well, maybe cars, but cars are even a depreciating asset unless you never drive them, and then fifty years from now they go up again. Like, yeah. I, Cars are not consistent. I mean, car. I, I would argue that um, if you're storing wealth in cars, you're back to art because the ones that oftentimes appreciate in value, like like old Porsches, where it's yeah. like there's a reason that the like th- it's the scarcity and the the sort of quality of them that is important, as opposed to just like I have running vehicles that are in right. good condition. Like that's not it. Like yeah. um, this isn't about utility, <laughs> right? I mean, it's reason you know sports cars and old funky weird cars are oftentimes the ones that like a- end up appreciating a bit in value. But it's a complicated endeavor to sink your wealth in, or to try and store yeah. wealth in that that way. Um, cars are but, an interesting form of sculpture as well. Yes, yes. Like even even an engine block is a sculpture. Yeah, like every every part of a car is a sculpture that serves some purpose yep. yep like it's i mean i get like in a lot of cases i don't think that automobile design is strictly design i think it's art too yeah although a lot of modern like uh, you know the cars that anyone can afford they don't put art into those cars they no. just it's well they they reek of that thing that that sort of marketing thing that bugs me so much ah, it's like yeah it's like why on my you know I have this old 2000 Toyota Tacoma truck and it's like the bumper is mostly plastic but there are these two metal these like chrome metal cheeks that are like I I would argue don't serve a lot of like real function mm-hmm. but they they give the impression that the bumper is metal you know what I mean it's like and so right. like like a, bumper yeah like it's yeah air sats like a lot of design that goes into cars um, that are for mass consumption yeah and like most things that are for mass consumption it makes me crazy that it's like that they are like i i don't necessarily think that form over function is wrong but when you think about the fact that it's actually function over form and the function is to sell you a car yes yes bingo bingo and not to be a car right it's like yes and you know, when you talked about like money and art you know intersecting i i and how paying a lot of money for art is somewhat problematic because like or like the valuation of art is problematic because like capitalism looks at a thing that's worth money yep and tries to distill it down to its individual components 
eschew the ones that don't contribute to making money and only focus on the isolated aspects of a thing that do make money. And so it's this destructive, extractive process every fucking time. And it's extremely apparent when it comes to art because it's not as easy to take that shit apart and boil it down to individual components and then sell off those components. If you dismantle it, it ceases to be the thing that it was. Like the art is only valuable when it's intact. Right. Which right. is why people are so obsessed with keeping art in the form that it yes. a- yeah. arose in, you know? Like, right, right. Um, and I that's what I think is so destructive about capitalism. I mean, there's so many things. Where to begin, right? But yes. in, at least when it pertains to art, the reason that money and art suck when they're combined is because in order for the money part to work, it has to distill something out of that art to assign the money to. And you can't do that and keep the art. You ruin the thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, yeah. <sighs> it's, <laughs> I like, I, oh man, it, this just like, I often, when we get into these discussions, I just spiral into that, like, um, <laughs> that, that realm of thought that's like, uh, kind of, um, existential sort of, yeah, you know, crisis of being human and being alive at the time we are, and and all of the things that weigh on my, you know, weigh on my shoulders as I think about as I get older, and I think about like where do I fit in the world, and how mm-hmm. do other people fit in the world, and what does it mean to be human, and what does it mean, and and I think of a lot about um, the concept of evolution, where it's like so when I think about like this problem of like marketing preying on our our individual psyche and like how you know preying on like like reflex emotions and things that are beyond our like sort of immediate rational ability and where those things that we have where it's like oh i react strongly to a particular color or i react to the concept of like like abortion being a great one right it's like i react strongly to that because i have this visceral feeling of like needing to survive and like other humans dying like especially babies where it's like the least threatening to me individually and the thing that i most need as a society is that there needs to be more babies so that we can continue having this horde of humans moving through time and so (laughs) and so sure it's like on its base level of like you know it being this thing that just really like triggers so many people Mm -hmm. to act in a certain way um it's really powerful and it and it's preying on this thing that's like you know does that serve us anymore to have that like visceral reaction to need to like care Mm. for the young? Um, And, you know, probably yes. And, and, but, but my point is, is that we're, you know, there's this external environment of like, you know, this society we live in of, of capitalism and, you know, the need to gain wealth and, and the growth in that way. And, Mm -hmm. and I'm just thinking about this, like, like whenever I think about evolution, I always think about how I think, um, people forget that like one of the biggest issues I have with people who argue against evolution or who are kind of stuck in that concept of like, you know, God and creationism and like everything Mm -hmm. having a purpose and being perfect is it's like, it's really dismissive of all of the pain and suffering that all living organisms have gone through in order to get to this point. And 
and like for that you know when people say like oh look you know god's perfect creation of that frog living on a lily pad and i'm like yeah but all of the the millions of frogs who died horrible painful deaths because they didn't have the resources necessary to achieve that bliss that you're assigning to this frog sitting on a lily pad like um and and then same with being human it's like we're going through this evolution as a society together as like these things, these new problems emerge and we suffer through them. Right. Right. And, and I just, um, I find it really frustrating because it's like, I don't know whether like, like if you and I sat here and we're like, Hey, we're going to solve the problem of marketing and making our lives miserable by like just <laughs> banning it or just like, yeah. just saying, Nope, you're not allowed to prey on people's emotions anymore. This is the way it goes. Um, which like cigarettes are a good example. Like in many countries, mm-hmm. I don't know if I, I haven't smoked in so long. I don't know what it's like here with laws and stuff, but when they started like many countries where it's like, they're no longer cigarette packs are no longer allowed to have anything else on them except for horrible pictures of oh, like lung cancer. Yes, and like, Canada does that. Yeah. yeah. And I think Mexico does that now or something. I, I think that's where I've I bet seen. there's a bunch of places. Yeah. And, and you know, like just big giant black letters that say this will kill you immediately or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. like real facts. And like, that's, yeah. and so that is a way of like having an external thing say, Hey, you're no longer allowed to do this thing. Right. Um, and we're, we're going to kind of a cut you off at this other point. And I, I don't know whether, you know, like we're, it's, it's a weird mess where it's like, we're steering our own evolution. Right. And like, mm-hmm. it's that mix of like, like what we can abstract think about and what we can kind of anchor in our social, like collective resource of mind of like you know government and and or social institution or social structure um and how those evolve versus like how our own biology evolves over you know painstakingly slow compared to the existence of you know you or i um, yeah as we just blip into existence and then blip out and never to be you know never to exist again like yeah and even how people talk about evolution is interesting to me they talk about it, it it seems to me like they talk about it they never talk about it in the current tense. It's right. something that happened and we can trace it over time or it's something that will happen in the future and we will know the results of it in the future. But yeah. nobody thinks about how they are a data point in the constant evolution of the whole thing moving. Like, right. like <clears throat> evolution isn't a thing that used to happen and we have arrived. Right, right. It's yeah. Like I, I would I would argue that doesn't happen in social context. Like I think that there mm-hmm. are... Um, I, you know, I know some scientists who, you know, study evolution and like they're, you know, I, one, there's a book that's really good called The Beak of the Finch. Um, and it's about oh. Darwin's finches in, um, it's pretty old now. Uh, it's, it's about Darwin's finches in the Galapagos. And, um, yeah. It's, it's written by, uh, Jonathan Weiner. Okay. And, um, it's, it's a great story. It's, uh, Basically, um, two biologists, Peter and Rosemary Grant, uh, spent 20 years proving that Charles Darwin did not know the full strength of his theory of evolution. And so ah, they, yes, and they study, um, they study finches in the Galapagos, and uh, it's amazing their their findings, like how, like over gener- like over you know the years, they observed 
this evolution of these finch beaks and where like, because mm-hmm. there's lots of these little micro ecosystems where, um, you know, these finches mostly eat the seeds of these like particular plants. And so sure. as, as the, the new generation of finches got stronger beaks, they were able to crush harder shelled seeds and destroy more of the potential offspring of the plants. So mm-hmm. then the following season there, those, like these waves of like the beak size changing in relation to the seed, the seed pods changing, like getting harder and then the finches getting stronger beaks and then the seed pods, you know, uh, changing tactic and becoming, Mm -hmm. um, like I I forget exactly what it was, but there's advantages to different shaped beaks, like whether they got stronger beaks or they got, you know, um, sort of more precise, softer, not softer, but like, more narrow beaks in order to sure. reach the seeds in a different way. I, I don't remember exactly yeah. how it works. But, yeah, yeah. Um, it's been a long time. I read it when I was, I think I was 20. Um, but it really, it really like paints this like real world picture of like a whole species going through mm-hmm. evolution in somebody's lifetime and over this period of 20 years. And yeah. yeah. And so, right. I mean, you're really like the idea that like we live in a, a rapidly evolving environment where our biology is evolving generation to generation. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the Mm -hmm. children that we have are going to have some changes for better or for worse. And they're, you know, um, and like the fact that as a society, we've done all these things to isolate ourselves from our environment to a point where um, there's arguments to be made that maybe we're not evolving in a way that is helpful because we're going to start evolving more and more to only be suited to living in environments that we create and 100% control. Yeah. Um, Yep. And, you know, I I don't know whether that's good or bad. I mean, I think, um, I think, you know, and, and it's been a long time since I studied biology, like in earnest. And so I may be speaking out of my ass here, but um, (laughs) my understanding is that brains, there's some thinking that brains kind of evolved like gray matter or, you know, brain matter kind of evolved from, um, from like stomachs basically oh like like, you know not not like there was a human walking around and then they had two stomachs and now one of them it's more like (laughs) like if you think about like single-celled organisms or like very rudimentary multicellular organisms where they're consuming um you know a certain kind of resource and brains became this like super evolved resource consumer where it's like they only consume one kind of food Right. Yeah. Like they're just yeah, like yeah. glucose. Like that's our thing. Like, right. you know, I, you know, a couple other things. And again, my biology is a little shaky on that. But um, but this idea that it's like this highly centralized nervous system mm-hmm. where it's it's now evolved to this point where it's like everything outside of the brain is there to create the perfect environment for the brain. And yes. like how as humans in society, how are we not just creating that same thing for ourselves? Yes. Like oh. we're just becoming more and more, you know hyper focused on like having the things that we want and nothing else. Yeah. And Ooh, that's a really interesting observation. I have not thought of that before. Yeah. Ooh. I'm going to be I'm going to be mulling on this for a while. Yeah. So, um I we are kind of running out of time and I wanted okay. to um Do we have a design concept? to share or colors of the day or i don't have either of those but i did share a link with you to an artist that i recently discovered oh um that i quite enjoy because we'd been you and i like played with some oil pastels a little while ago yes and so i found um this artist named christian scott on youtube 
and mm. his YouTube channel is Black Bean CMS. So Black Bean is one word and CMS is the second word. Okay, um, I'm opening it. I see. Oh, yeah. <gasps> and uh, so he does some really wonderful art. Um, his videos are, uh, I would describe them as much more flamboyant and he's quite young for, uh, I mean, I don't know, quite young, whatever that is. He's he's younger than you, are, you or I and he's very mm -hmm. vibrant and like he, I really enjoy his videos. He has a very good fun personality and um, he does a lot of, he both reviews uh, oil pastels and then he just does oil pastel drawings. He does a lot wow. of portraits and his his art is, um, well, I'll let you describe it because you can kind of look at it now and talk it's, about. It's, um, I love it because it has some of the qualities that I really appreciate in combination with each other, namely um, like distorted figures. Like, so it's obvious that these are people, mm -hmm. but like um, their features are very exaggerated or um, like uh, the, the, the individual features on someone's face are disproportionate to each other. Mm -hmm. um, so there's like this really sort of weird like distortion going on. And then the colors are not, life realistic i mean that right. is to say like there's images of people with like all kinds of different pastel and like very intense colors from the full color spec the visible color spectrum yeah and so like i'm looking at some here uh, a, p a painting that or a, a picture a piece of art that looks like uh, it kind of reminds me of like an outhouse with a pine tree next to it uh-huh um, and then there are some small buildings with very large buildings in the background of another painting and the small buildings in the front are very like colorful and have lots of, um, windows and like, you know, the shapes are not very smooth. It's like, there's a lot of texture to it. And then in the background, there are these like skyscrapers that are just gray. Mm -hmm. Um, so like all these people, the portraits have sort of distorted features. They're of people. Mm -hmm. but they're not in lifelike colors. So the colors are all rainbowy and like very psychedelic. Um, so yeah, I like, I like the distortion. I like the color palettes. I like the subject matter. Mm -hmm. I like, um, I would, I would describe maybe, really cool. um, some of his portraits as sort of Picasso esque in some. They elements. are a little bit. Yeah. Not, not at all. Um, not quite the same, like Picasso. Like you wouldn't confuse them for a Picasso. No, but. no, but they have, you know, um, they have a flavor of that. Maybe mm -hmm. some of them more than others, but um, yeah, they're just kind of wonderful. Yeah, like they're really cool. I even though the paintings of these people are very distorted, they're still like really, they're like very respectful of the subjects. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I also I feel like um, I think one of the things I really like about his pieces. Uh, are the the way that he captures a mood, even though oh. like many of his many of his pictures, like especially his faces, where one eye is not at all level with the other one, the symmetry mm -hmm. is all out of the window. Like one eye might be quite large compared to the other one, um, mm -hmm. and and all the features are there. But I I like um, I like that still there's a humanity to it where it's like you look into the eyes and the face and it's like, Oh, there's a feeling there. Like that's, yeah. there's a recognition of like a human face. And also, um, 
you know, maybe the way the eyelids are canted in a certain way, whether they're open or closed or the way yeah. that the mouth is set, even though the position of it on the face is not quite this, like, it is not realistic at all. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't feel, it, it still feels like, like human and, and some of his photos like, or photos, like, well, that's what I mean. Like some of his yeah. faces feel, can have a very sultry feel to them. Oh, yes. Um, and then some of them are more like there's one of um, that character in the movie Jim Carrey did the mask where um, mm-hmm. it's got this very like like one of his eyebrows is up and you know even though the face is still kind of like hyper realistic or hyper hyper deformed or whatever it's it's got this kind of feel to it that's very different than some of the other ones um, so yeah anyway yeah. I I would encourage uh, if you're listening to this and you made it all the way to the end. Uh, congratulations good job <laughs> um also uh if you're interested in this kind of art i you know have go have a look um also uh you could share with us if you have other artists that you like and you think we might be interested in and would love to hear us talk about them on the podcast or you have things to say about them um, yeah. you could write in and we could read back what you have to say um yes. if you know but do feel free to contact us we're not scraping people's email addresses we don't um, we're not a marketing, like we don't make any money on this. And so it's just kind of a platform to share thoughts and ideas. And, um, don't be afraid to communicate with us with the idea that, Oh, like now you're going to get sucked into being publicly known. <laughs> right. like, we're not going to share people's names who write into us, whether you say something really great or really awful without checking with you first to find out where you stand on that. Um, yeah. so, uh, we would just encourage you to write in cause we'd love to hear from people and get their Please thoughts. Please so. send us some yeah uh and again you can do that uh, you can go directly to our website fcbm.io or you can email dana our executive uh, oh she's i think i think she's now the co-founder founder and and, uh, and C- ceo. ceo yeah no founder longer ceo yeah so just go right to the top dana <laughs> um that's d-a-n-a at fcbm.io uh we <laughs> we're no longer thinking of her as the executive assistant and she is now the executive. Um, I, I think we've always sort of thought of her as the ringleader, but yes. maybe we were like, I, I feel like if we were like, well, great, this is all your idea and you're in charge. She would have been like, I'm out of here. Yes. Right. Right. Yes. Cause the whole podcast was her idea in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. It's her doing. Um, I never, ever would have thought like, what do you mean? No. Like, I'm not going to start a podcast. Why would I do that? I have nothing yeah, to say. Th- those <laughs> are dumb and terrible. Like, yeah. No, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so great. Uh-huh. Yeah. Send us mail. Yeah. I like mail. Please do. Okay. All right. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>